Linda and Tom Spilker with an update from Saturn this week on Planetary Radio. Hi everyone, welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan. It's time for another Cassini update from Deputy Mission Scientist Linda Spilker, but this time with a twist. Linda is joined by her husband, Tom Spilker, also of JPL, in the first of two conversations. We are packed tighter than spam in a can this week with a brand new Q&A from Emily Lakdawalla and a What's Up segment with Bruce Betts that goes to unheard of lengths to give away a Planetary Radio t-shirt, and I mean that literally. Let's get started with Bill Nye, the science and planetary guy, as Bill marks one of the biggest anniversaries and discoveries in space exploration history. Hey, hey, Bill Nye, the planetary guy here. I'd like to talk to you about the 50th anniversary of Explorer 1. Explorer 1 was a spacecraft launched by the United States in response to Sputnik. In the meantime, we tried to launch Vanguard, but it blew up. So Explorer 1 was the first successful orbiting U.S. spacecraft, January 31st, 1958. And this, uh, you could say, is a piece of trivia, a footnote. No, no, my friends. Explorer 1 discovered what are now called the Van Allen belts. Now, the Van Allen belts. These are belts. These are regions above the Earth where fantastically energetic particles streaming from the sun are trapped are held in space by nothing but the invisible Earth's magnetic field. Quite remarkable. No one had much thought about this. No one had much thought about what happens to particles that might come off of a star headed our way. They're held above, kept away from the Earth's surface by magnetism. And without magnetism, we would be totally different. What would we be? We would be reptiles. We would be amphibians. We would be humabots. Who's to say what we would be? And this discovery was made, if I may, by accident in a Cold War effort just to keep up with the other superpower literally on the other side of the earth. It's another example, my friends. We do space exploration and we make remarkable, unexpected, astonishing discoveries. Explorer 1 stayed in orbit until 1970, 12 years. Not bad for a first shot. Who knows what we will discover with our further explorations with more energetic, more powerful spacecraft as we go to the inner and outer solar systems. Thanks for listening. Next time you're walking down the street looking at the sky, think about the tremendous effort it took to put Explorer 1 in orbit and the remarkable safety we enjoy thanks to the Van Allen belts. Bill Nye, the Planetary Guy, talk to you next time on Planetary Radio. Linda Spilker is Deputy Project Scientist for Cassini at Saturn. She joins us a couple of times each year for an update on that incredibly successful mission. This time she has company, and he's no stranger. Tom Spilker is a principal member of the Jet Propulsion Lab's engineering staff, where he often serves as a so-called mission architect. He's also Linda's husband. We're going to talk with them about Cassini today, but they'll both be back next week to look at other topics, including a proposed mission to Neptune and how they have balanced work at JPL with raising a family. Linda and Tom, this is a first for Planetary Radio. You are the first uh, couple of guests we've had who are uh, tied at the hip as well as the brain, I guess, because both of you are here at JPL. Uh, Tom, we're going to 
include you in this conversation focus on Cassini but next week we're going to come back and talk more about the stuff that that you're up to particularly this field that you are part of called mission architecture but I hope that you will also jump in now and then as we uh, do one of these updates we've done a few times with Linda and uh, hear about what's happening with uh, that mission which uh, is still so successfully uh, flying around the Saturnian system absolutely you are now at about what, nearly three and a half years? No, I guess more than three and a half years in since uh, orbital insertion. Uh, so basically, you know nearly everything there is to know about the Saturnian uh, system, right? Oh, no, not even close. In fact, what we're learning is there are a lot more puzzles about Saturn and its moons and the magnetosphere than we ever thought possible when we first arrived. So that three and a half years has just, in a sense, whet our appetites for what else might be out there that we can learn about the Saturn system. Now, if this program airs when I think it's going to air, people will start to hear it just a few days before yet another flyby of Titan. Yes, we have flybys of Titan that happen regularly, and we do all sorts of activities at Titan. We take radar swaths. In fact, just recently we got our first pass over the south pole of Titan, and lo and behold, we discovered that the south polar region also has lakes, lakes mm. of liquid hydrocarbons very similar to the north, just not quite as many and some tantalizing hints that maybe there are dry lake beds in the south where it's near its summer and perhaps as the seasons change we might see those lakes fill up and the lakes in the north might go down so we're, we're watching and waiting to see that happen that's pretty exciting in itself if we discover yet another world in our solar system I mean we know we have seasons we know Mars has seasons and now this world Titan that everybody has been saying is is in so many ways like ours even though it's an awfully cold place Right, in very many ways. In fact, the, the major difference, it's so cold at Titan that water's frozen. And so instead of having a water cycle, we have a methane cycle. Methane can be frozen, it can be a vapor, it can be can rain down on the surface. We see channels like look like river channels and stream beds that are probably created by this methane weather and perhaps even the source of what's in the lakes, now primarily at the North Pole of Titan. You'll be able to tell, as usual, that I spent some time uh, last night uh, knowing we'd be talking, uh, looking at some of the latest on the website. And another thing that was featured there is uh, more about this this wonderful moon, Enceladus, which just becomes more and more exciting. There was a great image that actually showed these individual ice geysers uh, shooting off of the surface of this little moon. Yeah, those ice geysers are very, very interesting. And in fact, as we go move from our prime mission, which ends on uh, June 30th of this year, and go into the extended mission, we're going to have more closer looks at this very fascinating moon. In fact, on March 12th, we're going to come within 50 kilometers oh my, wow. of, of the surface of Enceladus. And it won't be real close to the plumes, but we're going to be flying through that plume region and doing some sampling right there and measuring what the composition might be of the particles that are coming out of the plumes, both with the ion and neutral mass spectrometer and with the cosmic dust analyzer. Now, those instruments, were they designed to work with stuff that was surrounding the spacecraft? Weren't they supposed to work at a distance? I mean, it's called remote sensing, right? Right. Well, in the case of the two instruments I talked about, those are really in situ. We're measuring what's around the spacecraft. But the INMS, ion and neutral mass spectrometer, was made to sense the atmosphere of Titan. And the cosmic dust analyzer was made to sample the meteoroids that come through and look for micrometeoroid particles maybe coming off the rings or off the moon. So they weren't intended 
to measure the plumes at Enceladus in part because we didn't know they were there <laughs> right. before Cassini discovered them. Yeah. Can you tell us about this discovery also, I guess, that, that the A-ring uh, is a pretty good sponge, that it's soaking up some of this stuff that comes off of Enceladus? Right. It looks like by studying the trajectories of the particles that we can get from the cosmic dust analyzer that a lot of those tiny E-ring particles end up at the outermost region of the A-ring. And we knew from pictures that the colors were a little bit different and that this region appeared different than the remainder of the A-ring. So it, it does indeed appear that's one sink for these plume particles that come out from Enceladus, form the E-ring, this giant ring that fills a lot of the Saturnian system. And then some of those particles end up as part of Saturn's main rings, as part of the A-ring. What can you tell us uh, recent findings about uh, that the big planet down below all of this? Well, Saturn is a very interesting place. Uh, right now, one of the more recent discoveries is that the poles, both the north and south poles, you have two tiny hot spots. If you go northward or southward about 88 degrees latitude, those regions are very hot. We think there's downwelling into the atmosphere at that region. The atmosphere goes down, heats up, and creates these hot spots, one at each pole. Weather. Weather, in a sense. And, and you've got a hurricane at the south pole, a circular-shaped hurricane, mm and a hexagonal vortex at the North Pole. So a very interesting place. And when you say hot, we're speaking in relative terms. Relative, right. Relative to the Hot for a penguin. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not bad that, that far out. So we're far from over. There's much more to look forward to here. I saw uh, on the timeline that in May, there's another Titan flyby, but it's another one of these that's going to come very close to the top of the atmosphere. Right, and give us a chance to sample the atmosphere of Titan. Another discovery is that there are very large chains of molecules high up in the atmosphere, maybe even 10,000 proton equivalents in, in length. So these huge molecules, probably hydrocarbons, maybe some nitrogen. And the question is, what kind of chemistry allows you to grow particles that are 10,000 atomic mass units in size? That's a, that's a big polymer, right? Wouldn't that be the right that, term for That's this? right, and mm -hmm. maybe that's some of the material that sort of drifts down to the surface and forms some of the dunes that we've seen on Titan, but totally unexpected. In fact, we saw these as negatively charged ions, and it was in the electron detector of the, the plasma instrument that we found these uh, large negative ions. See, I did not notice this on the website. That seems very exciting, because you get <laughs> molecules that big, you're talking... in potentially at least, enormous complexity. Right, right. And and we're not sure if they're actually polymers, linear kinds of molecules, or polycyclic poly, uh, aromatic hydrocarbons, combinations of benzene rings uh, put together in a more uh, planar rather than linear kind of fashion. We don't know which. But it's just very interesting that they're there and that they're so big. We'll continue our conversation with Linda and Tom Spilker about the Cassini mission in just a minute. This is Planetary Radio. Hey, hey, Bill Nye, the science guy here. I hope you're enjoying Planetary Radio. We put a lot of work into this show and all our other great Planetary Society projects. I've been a member since the disco era. Now I'm the Society's Vice President. And you may well ask, why do we go to all this trouble? Simple. We believe in the PB&J, the passion, beauty, and joy of space exploration. You probably do too, or you wouldn't be listening. Of course, you can do more than just listen. You can become part of the action, helping us fly solar sails, discover new planets, and search for extraterrestrial intelligence and life elsewhere in the universe. Here's how to find out more. You can learn more about the Planetary Society at our website, 
planetary.org slash radio or by calling 1-800-9-WORLDS. Planetary Radio listeners who aren't yet members can join and receive a Planetary Radio t-shirt. Members receive the internationally acclaimed Planetary Report magazine. That's planetary.org slash radio. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. We're talking about Cassini, that magnificent bus-sized spacecraft that continues to reveal the secrets of Saturn and its big family of rings and moons. Linda Spilker is the project's deputy scientist. Her colleague and more is Tom Spilker, a principal member of JPL's engineering staff. We'll hear more from Tom about his work as a mission architect next week, but there's much more to say about Cassini's immediate and more distant future. There is much more to look forward to. I saw also that we're not too far away from what will, I guess, be only the second of two flybys of, of Tethys. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Right, right. In the main mission, anyway. Right, right. We have uh, some relatively close flybys of these moons. Uh, Tethys is an interesting place. It's not one of the bigger moons, but we're sort of basically putting a family portrait together mm. of each of these moons. and How are they alike, and how are they different? And in fact, just last September, we had a very close flyby of a very interesting moon, Iapetus. Iapetus has one dark and one bright side. And in this case, with our close flyby, it was only 1,600 kilometers away. We got to see the bright side and look for the structures there and to try and see, is the dark material coating the bright material or is the bright material coating the dark material? And what we found in a lot of the craters is that there were like, looked like little pools of dark material that the dark particles had settled down into the the bottoms of these craters. Hmm. And so it looks like maybe the dark material is coating Iapetus. But we still don't really know what it is. I mean, this is probably, you could make a case for this being one of the top 10 mysteries of the solar system, I'd say. Right, right. We think it might be perhaps some kind of hydrocarbons, but there might be other things involved as well. You already mentioned that your main mission, four years worth, is over this coming summer. You got a spacecraft that, according to the reports that I see every week, is in good health. I saw that just uh, I, just recently, I guess, there was another test of these reaction wheels that are used to help steer the spacecraft. Mechanical parts, nothing lasts forever. How long might we expect to see Cassini returning good science from uh, Saturn? Well, that's a very good question. We have a proposal on the table for a two-year extended mission in which we'd have seven additional flybys of Enceladus, including getting very close, flying right through that plume, like flying through a car wash, if you will. A lot more Titan flybys, a chance to look at the system again at a variety of different inclinations around it. And so that's on the table as a proposal. Uh, as soon as that gets approved by NASA, we'll go ahead with it. And then after that, there's a possibility that perhaps we could last, you know, perhaps another half a dozen years even after that. It'd be very interesting to get to the solstice or the equivalent of like would be summer or winter on the Earth and look for those seasonal changes, especially on Titan. Mm. So do those lakes indeed migrate, as we have one idea, from the north to the south as the seasons change? We could hang around and study the, the material coming out of Enceladus. Do those geysers turn on and off? Are there times when they're going like a fire hose and other times when there's less activity going on? So there's potential with the healthy spacecraft that we could go, oh, perhaps out until 2016, 2017 wow. even. Tom, where would you be watching as a spacecraft gets a, a little older and a little crankier? I mean, what, what would you be most concerned about just uh, as, as things age there up in the hard vacuum? 
Well, I think you put your finger on the main problem, and that is mechanical systems, moving parts that wear down, they lose lubricants and so on. So anything with moving parts, such as reaction wheels, uh, things that point different parts of the spacecraft, if, if anything needs pointing. I know there are some of the instruments that have what they call articulation, uh, moving parts that will point them differently. Those might uh, start to, to wear out and not be able to move anymore. We're really certain, fairly certain, uh, in ter engineering terms that usually means really certain, just how long our electric power is going to last, and that's going to be for a long time. We'll have electric power long after mechanical systems well, are failing. I, I think of the Voyagers, which are yes. so many years out and still delivering science back to Earth. And then the one other thing that we do need to watch is how much propellant uh, rocket fuel we have on board. Uh, there are two things that do does for you. You can change the direction of motion of the spacecraft, so if you need to fly by a moon a little bit closer or a little mm. further away to tune the, the trajectory from then on, you use the rocket engines to do that. But also small rocket engines can control the attitude of the spacecraft. And when these reaction wheels have spun up, as we call it, they, they absorb torques that are from the sun, from the magnetic field and so on, that try to twist the spacecraft. Mm. And to prevent the spacecraft from twisting, we spin up those reaction wheels to, to oppose the torque that's being applied to the spacecraft. And then when they get to a certain point, you have to, what we call, desaturate them, spin them back down. But you can only do that when a thruster is holding the spacecraft in, oh. in position so it doesn't go spinning off in a direction you don't want. Yeah. So as long as we have that propellant on board, we can desaturate the reaction wheels. When we run out of propellant, we'll only be able to do that until the next time the reaction wheels saturate, and then we're at end of mission. Now, you can also control the attitude of the spacecraft directly by the uh, thrusters instead of the reaction wheels, but you tend to burn up a lot more fuel more quickly than you do with the reaction wheels. So that propellant will be a, a major concern. Well, Cassini has a has Titan to use basically as part of their way to change the shape of the orbit and mm. different places that we visit. So you can think of Titan as having like an extra big fuel tank on Cassini. And so these close flybys of Titan not only give us exciting data about Titan, but also help us change the shape of and the, and the destination of each of our orbits thereafter. An active participant in Act the ongoing absolutely. Cassini mission. Uh, we're out of time, but we're going to come back next week, and uh, we're going to talk about another very exciting mission, which at the moment is still on the drawing boards, but you're both involved with it. And then, Tom, I hope we'll be able to talk with you about this field that you excel at, mission architecture, and then maybe a little bit about how the two of you balance life at this this little paradise on the hill here with uh, a home life, uh, a family that uh, that you've raised. It'll be my pleasure, Matt. Uh, we will do that uh, when we come back in a week. Our guests are Linda Spilker, the Deputy Project Scientist for Cassini-Huygens, and her husband, Tom Spilker, a mission architect, but his official title is principal member. He's a principal member of the engineering staff. We'll put it that way since that's how JPL puts it. When we come back right after a commentary from uh, Emily this week's Q&A, we'll have Bruce Betts for this week's edition of What's Up. Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, I remember that observations of Mercury's orbit were used to test Einstein's theory of general relativity. 
Did Messenger mission planners need to account for relativistic effects when they planned its orbit? Einstein's theory of general relativity predicts that space-time will be curved near massive objects like the Sun. This curvature of space-time affects the orbits of objects close to the Sun. Mercury's elliptical orbit precesses around the Sun by a tiny amount, about a tenth of a degree per century, as a result of the curvature of space-time. The software that's used to predict spacecraft motions generally does take relativistic effects into account, but if the effect is so small, do they really need to do that? To answer this question, Tony Taylor of Kinetics Incorporated, a private company that navigates Messenger, simulated Messenger's Mercury flyby with had general relativity expressions turned off. He found that failure to account for relativistic effects after Messenger's last deep space maneuver would have resulted in the spacecraft being 10 kilometers high and 13 seconds late for its gravity assist flyby, a difference that's not disastrous but would have required corrections later to return Messenger to its proper course. Relativistic effects accelerate Messenger by very tiny amounts, only about 1% the magnitude of the acceleration that the spacecraft feels due to solar radiation pressure. But Taylor found that, if the forces weren't accounted for, Messenger would be noticeably off its predicted course within days. Thus, Taylor's conclusion was that general relativity is definitely required for accurate navigation of Messenger. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. And now here's Matt with more Planetary Radio. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Bruce Betts is uh, out there via Skype, speaking to us from his home on this uh, holiday weekend, at least here in the U.S. He's ready to tell us about the night sky and a little bit about the diameter of Jupiter, which went in directions to lengths that nobody expected. Ah, lengths, I get it. Uh, Amazing. I just mentioned something casually about whatever units you want, and uh, people went uh, wonderfully crazy with giving us units. We'll get to that at the end of the show. In the meantime, let's talk about what's up there in the sky. If you're listening to this shortly after it's posted, then you've still got a total lunar eclipse in store, depending on where you live in the world. Uh, On the evening of February 20th or 21st, depending on where you are, there will be a total lunar eclipse visible from most of the Americas uh, Africa, Western Europe. Check out uh, more about that uh, from a link on our Planetary Radio page, planetary.org slash radio. And I will mention that the middle of the eclipse is at about 7.30 Pacific time there on the 20th. You can also always, anytime, check out Mars in the evening sky glowing still high overhead, moving towards the west. That bright, orangish-looking thing. We've also got Saturn that is rising in the east shortly uh, before sunset, so it'll already be up in the east, and you can check it out all through the night, looking kind of yellowish. But the real treat is the pre-dawn sky. We have still Venus and Jupiter not that far apart, both very low in the east, but two brightest planets, both brighter than the brightest star in the sky, and uh, they are visible in the east, with uh, Jupiter being the one that's to the upper right and not quite as bright as Venus. So that's what our sky holds. Let us go on to this week in space history. Uh, Of course, uh, you know, Matt, in 1473, Nicholas Copernicus was born. I knew it was sometime around that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, We also had Pluto discovered in 1930. And this week, John Glenn in 1962, first American to orbit the Earth. 
And something we're going to come back to in 1968, discovery of the first pulsar was announced. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. In fact, let's go to our random space fact. Did you know that when uh, pulsars were first identified by a graduate student at the time at Cambridge, Jocelyn Bell, she actually called them LGMs for a while? I was going to mention that. I thought that was probably where you were going. LGM. And yes, little green men because of this regular pulsing seen coming in radio wavelengths from stars in the sky. You know, thought they could be little green men. Uh, but uh, turned out to be a natural effect of a neutron star spinning really, really fast and putting out a beam of electromagnetic radiation, almost like a lighthouse spinning, but very regular in their pulsing. Very kind of kind of weird objects, one of the weird objects of the universe. And I just love themes, so we're going to come back to pulsars for our trivia question. Excellent. But first, let's go to the last trivia question, because I know you've got some groovy units to discuss. We asked you a seemingly simple question. What is the diameter of Jupiter, you know, rough diameter of Jupiter. And I mentioned uh, people could give it uh, in kilometers or any other unit. And we got some weird units. How'd we do, Matt? Yeah, that was where you went right by saying any any unit that we can actually verify. <laughs> so we got almost 40 different kinds of units from the very prosaic, like our winner, who uh, came up with the correct uh, number in miles, 88,700 miles in diameter. That came from Ron Miller in uh, Fairhaven, Michigan. Ron, we're going to send you a Planetary Radio t-shirt. But, man, oh, man, people had great fun with this. We're going to try and put the list up on the website, planetary.org slash radio, because it's just such fun. We don't have time to go through all of them. But uh, you want to hear a few of these? I would love to. Here you go. How about 16,888? 7,840,240 barley corns. <laughs> ah, yes. I remember having to do physics problems in those units. Uh, almost 440,000 Eiffel Towers. Viva it's la a French unit, right? Viva la France. Uh, One-tenth of the sun's diameter. That's approximate 0. 0.47 light seconds. Then we got into the ones where people got really creative, like Lindsay Dawson, who went to the trouble of figuring out that it's 658 million BBs. That's bowling balls. Huh? <laughs> I love it. Gosh, how about from uh, Olivier Lesseau? 80,224,719 me's. That is him. That's uh, based <laughs> on his 178-centimeter height. <laughs> now, that I never did physics problems with. <laughs> 178 centimeters of pure ego, as Olivier put it. Here's a really simple one that actually a couple of people came up with. Torsten Zimmer and James A. Brown both came up with the answer of one. That's one JD, or Jupiter diameter. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and, 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 I mean, just an amazing assortment. Cubits, of course. We had to get cubits. But, uh, like I said, we'll try and post these because they are so entertaining. And just more proof that uh, our listeners are a bunch of wiseacres. <laughs> yes, thank you all. I, I kept getting these emails all week forwarded from Matt, and it was nice to have uh, <laughs> nice to have some laughs. Well, what do you got for us next time? Well, surprisingly enough, we're going back to pulsars. I've got a question for you. In the middle of the Crab Nebula is the Crab Pulsar. How many times a second does it spin on its axis? First of all, it's totally freaky that there's a neutron star spinning that quickly to begin with that it's measured. 
This time, I'll give you the units, times per second. How many times per second does it spin? Go to planetary.org slash radio to find out how to enter. And you're going to need to get that to us by the 25th of February, 2008, Feb 25 at 2 p.m. Pacific. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about Smokey Bear. (laughs) And then maybe what the diameter of Jupiter would be in Smokey Bears. Thank you, and good night. He's Bruce Betts, the director of projects for the Planetary Society, and he joins us every week for What's Up. I'm not thinking Smokey, I'm thinking Smoots. 84,019,273 Smoots. Look it up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California. Have a great week.